you know, all of these naive sort of ideas I had at the time about our legal system never really sort of panned out. You know, we're, we're taught growing up that, you know, the Fourth Amendment, the amendment that protects us from illegal search and seizure, which we sometimes naively call our right to privacy, existed. You know, everybody thinks of their Miranda rights, their right to a lawyer, uh, their right to a fair trial, their right to a full and fair hearing of the arguments, a.k.a. due process. And none of that happened in my case. And it was sort of a wake-up call to how the legal system truly works. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, as always, Kerry Parker, uh, and we've got a fantastic show for you today. I've actually got a two-parter. Uh, I had a fantastic discussion, very interesting discussion, with a man named Ladar Levison. He runs a company called LavaBit, which is a secure email provider. And we had such a good conversation that I had to break it up into two shows. And uh, the main thing you need to know about him is he had one very particular customer that makes him very special. And that customer was Edward Snowden. So I think I've got your attention now. This is going to be a fantastic interview. We're going to talk about his service all the things that went down with his service related to Edward Snowden, which is very, very interesting and very important for our democracy. And we'll talk about secure email and what that means for you and why you need to care. But before we get to that fantastic interview, I've got a couple very important news items to pass along. Uh, the DEF CON and Black Hat hacker conferences were in Las Vegas last week. And of course, there's always some revelations that come out of that. We'll cover a couple of those. And I've got some other just interesting tidbits that I wanted to make sure I pass along. So let's start out with Adobe Flash. Adobe Flash is a plugin for your web browser that allows it to show all sorts of fancy animated kind of stuff. Sometimes it lets you do gaming right there in the website. Sometimes it lets you show videos on the website. The HTML language is what, which is what runs the runs the web, which has been around for so long, had shortcomings initially, and and it didn't allow it to do some of the fancier things. So Adobe Flash came along and and made these things available. Well. Unfortunately, over the years, it's turned into just an absolute security nightmare and uh, bad advertising, what we call malvertising, uh, was using uh, Adobe Flash to infect computers and do all get up to all sorts of mischief. And whenever Adobe comes out with fixes, there's all sorts of always critical fixes for Flash. And it's just horrible. I've recommended to people for years that they uninstall it. Well, Adobe has finally announced that it will be dying Unfortunately, it won't be dying soon enough. It's still going to take another three years for them to stop supporting it. Um, however, in the meantime, it's already become a lot less popular, and a lot of web browsers are already basically blocking Flash-based stuff and saying, hey, do you really want to run this? Um, because in many cases, well, in many cases you don't because it's annoying. Uh, these are the banner ads and things you used to see with like, shoot the bug, shoot the bug, or catch the monkey, or, you know, where it makes you do these things because it wants to get your attention, which always drove me crazy. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of these were also uh, housing malware. Um, so anyway, uh, a lot of the browsers have already started cutting back on this, and you'll start to see this more and more. HTML has, um, the language of the web has evolved to the point where we no longer need Flash. There's no, there's no other reason to be, using, to be using Flash anymore. So it's a good thing it's going away. It's just a shame it's going to take too long. But it is now official. Adobe has cut support for it. Uh, and over the next three years, it's going to slowly be taken off the plate and taken out of our lives. And hopefully that will make us a lot more secure. In the meantime, what I suggest you do is that you just completely uninstall Flash. Almost no websites require it anymore. Uh, but if you do happen to find that one website that still says, hey, I need Flash to run, you need this plugin, 
um, and you just absolutely have to use this site. Uh, run Google Chrome. Google has decided to, because it's so critical that they keep Flash up to date because there's so many problems in Flash, what they decided to do was embed Flash directly into the Chrome browser. So that way they can make sure that it's up to date and keep you up to date and always have the latest security fixes. So if you have to go to a website that uses Flash, use the Chrome browser. Flash is already built in and therefore you'll still be able to get to that content. Firefox, Safari, Internet Explorer, all these other web browsers, just uninstall Flash. In other news, Roomba, the maker of the wildly popular home vacuum robots, these are, if you haven't seen one, they're about the size of a Frisbee and uh, you know, maybe three or four inches high and you put them off in the corner somewhere in their little charging station and you program them to run in the middle of the night and they wake up and they vacuum your floor and when, when you wake up in the morning, it's all clean. We have one. They're fantastic. We've got hardwood floors and two dogs that shed all the time. So it's, <laughs> we have this thing, wake, wake up at three in the morning, vacuum the floor. So when we get up in the morning, all the dog hair has been cleaned up. It's, it's really quite wonderful. Um, but the way the Roombos cover the area is they basically just kind of ping pong around randomly um, and they just go bounce around your room, hitting furniture, hitting the walls, and and just kind of randomly making changes and basically kind of hoping that they're going to cover everything. Imagine if you mowed your lawn like that, how inefficient that would be. Uh, so Roomba, realizing this, of course, uh, finally had the uh, ability to make their, their vacuum smarter. They put a little camera on them. Uh, and now they the, the more modern Roombas actually kind of map out your house. So when they go around the first time, they they see the furniture, they see the walls, and they actually remember where all these things are so that when they come back around again, they don't have to worry about bouncing around. They could be a lot more efficient as they clean your room. However, like all of these new smart devices that are coming out, they're, they're doing great things. Uh, the fact that they're building in smarts is fantastic. It makes them more efficient, makes them be able to do even better things for us. But now that is data. And data is gold. And so Roomba has said that they are considering basically selling their maps of your house that that little robot creates to third parties. Now, it, the headlines have been kind of bouncing around on this. And Roomba has since come out and said, oh, no, no, we're not going to sell it unless you say it's okay. Um, we'll see how this ends up. But right now, what they're basically saying is you have to tell us it's okay. And then once you tell us it's okay, then we will sell this data and make more money. Now, of course, the, we, we know that unfortunately the way a lot of these things work is they have these end user license agreement, these what we call EULAs. And sometimes you automatically approve this license agreement by opening the box or by turning on the device somewhere buried in the, in the, in the documentation, or maybe there's a little, a little seal on the box that you have to cut to open it that says by opening this box, you agree to the terms of service. So, you know, agree is a, is a kind of a, a flaky word. So we'll see how that actually plays out. But the, the key thing to note and is that, that this is where we're heading. We have, have all these really smart devices that are doing great things for us. And to do those things, it needs to learn about us. It needs to save data about us. And that's all well and good until it comes time to monetize that data at your expense. So anyway, just another story. I thought it was interesting. But we all just need to be keeping in mind uh, all these smart devices are selling us out in some, in some cases so these companies can make even more money. So now let's talk about a couple of the things that came out of the hacker conference. Uh, there's been a new malware identified for Apple computers. Uh, they're calling it FruitFly, uh, and it gets pretty nasty. If, if you've got your uh, computer infected with this virus, the bad guys can actually take over your Mac. They can look through your webcam. They can do all sorts of nasty stuff. Now, the good news is, according to Apple, this issue was fixed back in January. 
and only affected older or out-of-date Macs. So as long as you've got a mostly modern Mac and you're keeping that thing up to date, and really there's no reason not to. Their, their operating system upgrades are all free now. So I highly recommend that you get on the latest and greatest Apple operating system version and turn on the auto updates and then you'll be just fine. Uh, if you're not, if you've got an older Mac or if you're not keeping it up to date, now is the time to get that done because there's just this malware is bad enough and they're going to find more. So make sure you're keeping your Macs up to date. The other big news out of the Hacker Conference uh, was something called Broadpone. Uh, that's P-W-N, it's pronounced pwn in the hacker community, or own, or if somebody's pwned, that means that the, they have been taken over. Uh, and hackers use that term when they take over a computer. So this thing called Broadpone uh, is, a, is malware that attacks Broadcom Wi-Fi chips. And while that might sound a little bit esoteric, you got to realize that that affects over 1 billion devices when you, when you consider all the Android phones, iPhones, and, and other devices that have these chips. They're very, very common. Uh, Broadcom makes a lot of the Wi-Fi chips that are in a lot of your smart devices. Uh, for instance, uh, just, a, just a few at the top of the list they say are affected. The Samsung Galaxy from S3 up through S8. Uh, the Samsung Note 3, Nexus 5, 6, 6X, and SP, 6P. All iPhones after iPhone 5. So you can see quickly how we get up to a billion devices. There's there's many, many devices affected, and it's a really insidious bug. You don't have to connect to the Wi-Fi. If you're, if you're in range of a Wi-Fi router that has this malware on it, all you have to do is be able to see it. The, as long as the Broadcom chip uh, is within range, your device could be taken over. So fixes have already been put out for both Apple and Google. Uh, the problem, of course, with uh, Google is a lot of the Android devices are hard to update. Some of them are impossible to update. But please, get your phones updated. If there's any software updates waiting for your phone, get those installed. This is a really nasty bug. Uh, and there's nothing that you have to do other than walk around within range of a bad Wi-Fi router to be infected. So this is ugly. Make sure you get your devices updated. And now from the of course they are department, uh, some Verizon wireless users have been noticing this week that their videos from YouTube and Netflix have been slower than they should be. And turns out that they actually were being throttled, which is to say they've been actively slowed down by Verizon. And now Verizon is just saying, oh, this is just part of a temporary test. We're doing some video optimization. Uh, weren't really meaning to do that, but let's face it. What they're doing is they're getting ready to throttle video that's not theirs. This is exactly why we need net neutrality. This is what net neutrality is in place to solve, among other things. Verizon, being an internet service provider, now that they're the internet service provider for your mobile device, is now, with if the FCC rules get, get taken away that were put in place last fall, that which the is what the FCC new chairman is proposing to do, Verizon will be allowed to do this and it will be perfectly legal. And what they can do is they can slow down their competitors' services and make them perform less well and make their own services give priority. This is why we need net neutrality. So anyway, if you happen to notice that on your Verizon phone, that these videos seem to be lagging and not doing well, it was not just you. It was Verizon doing it to you. And finally, we've got a story that comes out of Wisconsin about a company called Three Square Market who says they're going to microchip their employees. Yes, you read that right. They're going to chip their employees like we do with our dogs. <laughs> now, of course, most of the headlines read just that way. In fact, this one says, Wisconsin Company Three Square Market to Microchip Employees. That doesn't make it sound like the employees have a choice, and of course they do. When you dig into the story a little further, what you find out is what's really going on. First of all, is this probably more, more of a PR stunt than anything else. This is not the first company to offer this to their employees. What they're doing is they're offering to implant this very small little, what they call an RFID, 
uh, RF being radio frequency, ID being identifier. So a radio frequency identifier. They say it's about the size of a grain of rice. It's a pretty big grain of rice. It's probably a half inch long uh, and pretty thin. And what they want to do is they want to take this little device and implant it between your index finger and your thumb and that little webby area right there in the middle of those two fingers. And uh, what this will basically allow them to do as employees voluntarily is buy things from their automated uh, soda machines and snack machines, pay for things uh, like the uh, like they would with a credit card, just by basically tapping or swiping their hand across the sensor. So really, all this really is, it's a little device that goes in your hand that emits a code. And that code, you could just as well have put a, you know, tattooed a barcode on your hand and scanned it. It's the same kind of technology. Basically, it's just a number that is associated with you. Now, of course, that also means that you could hack this and someone else could impersonate you. If they could find some way to generate that same signal and that same code, then they could walk up and pretend to be you. But there's a couple of key things I want to talk about uh, in relation to this story. First of all, is the notion that so many of these headlines make it sound like the employees were going to be chipped like dogs. Like they were going to like, it was mandatory somehow that the employees of this company had to be chipped. And then of course, then the implication is, oh my gosh, they're going to be tracking their employees everywhere they go. So that was clickbait. That was to get you to look at the article and then look at the advertising on the webpage. What's really going on is the company is voluntarily asking their employees the, for, uh, for people who won't want to do this program to install this little $300 chip in their skin to let them buy things without having to use their credit card. That's pretty much all there is to it. There's no GPS in this. You can't check, track somebody around the planet with it. Now, I will say that uh, people have figured out ways to get the codes off these devices from further away than a few inches. The way it's supposed to work is you're supposed to get very close to something, and then, then it reads it. It sends out a pulse of energy, and that energy is enough to make that chip respond. Um, and you're only supposed to be able to do that at short distances. But we have these things actually in our credit cards and our passports and other things now too, these RFIDs. And so that's why if you've ever gone to buy a wallet or buy a passport holder, some of them uh, claim to be RFID blocking. So it's basically a little shield in there that means that they can't be read at a distance because people are actually concerned about that. Even though the technology is supposed to be such that you can only read it very close and you'd think that would make it more secure and keep your privacy more in check. There are ways to read these things at greater distances. So they actually could be used in some ways to track you, depending on if you got close enough to one of these kind of sensors that could do it at longer range. So there's that aspect to it. There's the privacy aspect to it. But then there's also just the clickbait, hyperbole, headline, attention-grabbing aspect to it. How do we know whether or not these things are fact or fiction? They seem like they're too bad to be true or too good to be true. Well, I'm going to tell you a little bit about that in our tip of the week, so make sure you stay tuned at the end of the show for that. And it's almost time to get to the first part of our fascinating interview with Ladar Levison. But before we do, I want to talk to you a little bit about Hover.com. Uh, have you ever had a great idea for a website name, just, just something that you thought for sure would be a wonderful name to have, or ever just wanted to have a really cool email address, the very personalized email address. Well, the way you do that is you get yourself a domain name. It's very easy to do. It doesn't cost a lot of money. Uh, you go to a domain name registrar and you say, I want this name. And it'll say, okay, that name's available or it's not. Let's say you wanted to get the email address, uh, Carrie at the best dad of all times.com. Uh, you would go to hover.com and you say, is this name available? And by the way, that one is available. Uh, so you'd say, ah, oh, yes, I want that name. I want to lock it down and make that mine. And as long as you're willing to pay for that, that domain is yours forever. And you could have that email address that you want. You can come up with a great website. Uh, if you've got a great idea that you think would turn into a great product, that's the way to go. You need to get yourself a website. 
And these guys have got hundreds and hundreds of domain name extensions. You don't have to get a .com or a .net or a .org. Everyone's got one of those. You can go and find all sorts of crazy ones like uh, .ninja or .poker. There's even a .mom. Uh, but there's, of course, other ones like .tv, .tech, .design, things like that. So many choices that go right along with your cool, uh, cool domain name. You got to check that out. The list is just enormous. These guys have built-in privacy. Most other companies charge you an extra 40 or 50% for that privilege. Hover says, you know what? Everyone needs the privacy aspect. We're just going to build that right into our costs. No need to pay extra for that. They don't upsell you on a whole bunch of other stuff either. But honestly, the thing that drives me to Hover.com, the reason I switched all my domains, both mine and my wife, to Hover.com was their service. They were just so helpful and so easy to get a hold of. Most places today, you call in, you get some really long message, pre-recorded message, you know, please listen to all our options because our menu has changed, yada, yada, yada. And you swear to God, they're doing everything they can to not let you talk to a live human being. That is completely the opposite of Hover. When you call Hover, they answer. Not through a menu, not have to hit a button one, not have to select English or Spanish or whatever. They just answer the phone. It's just, it's just amazing. Now, of course, you know, sometimes they will get busy. I have at least one time when I called them, they were busy and they, they didn't put me through a whole lot of rigmarole. They just said, Hey, we're a little busy right now. We'll call you right back. You won't lose your place in line. Just stay by the phone. We'll call you back. And they, and they did. In fact, one case that was like within a minute, they called me right back. So, and they're so helpful. They're so nice. Um, being able to have someone like that to be able to walk you through any problems you have and get you, get you up and running. is just fantastic. So anyway, what I want to tell you about particularly right now, go to hover.com slash firewalls. And if you go, if you go there right now, uh, you'll get 10% off your first order. Again, that's hover.com slash firewalls. These guys are really fantastic. Give them a look. Think up that great website name. Think up that great email address you've always wanted to have and go get it. Hover.com is where you want to go. And speaking of email, let's talk a little bit about secure email. I know we all think of text messaging these days and, and other messaging apps, but email has been around for a really long time and it's still one of the most important communication tools that we have. And unfortunately, when email was built, privacy and security really was not a thought. Um, people weren't worried about that now. But think of all the things that have gone down with email now. There's been David Petraeus, uh, who was taken down from his emails. John Podesta's emails with the DNC. Um, all the emails that were supposedly lost from Hillary Clinton's server. Email is still an extremely important uh, method of communication today. And for whatever reason, our emails have really just not been secure. Now, most of the traversal of our emails, that is when we send something from our computer to Google or to Yahoo, uh, and it eventually goes to the other person, while that email is in transit, it's encrypted because we're using HTTPS, uh, though that S is for secure. Those connections are secure. So while that data is in transit, is encrypted so that anybody along the way can't see what's going on. However, the email stored on the server is usually not encrypted. So that means if somebody were to hack into that system, they could read those emails. If somebody were to get into someone else's account, they could read those emails because they were not encrypted. They were not scrambled. Um, that's where services like LavaBit come in. Now we've all used, you know, Yahoo and Gmail and, and those services make money off of you and your information. So they actually want to be able to look into your emails and look for keywords and things where they can use those, use those terms to either learn information about you and store that off and, or give you advertising because that's how they make their money. And that's why those services are quote unquote free. They're not really free. You're giving up your personal information so that they can, so they can provide those services to you and give you advertising and things like that and build up, as I've said many times, build up a dossier on you and then sell that data to other people. 
And of course, beyond that, there are those people out there that really need to keep their privacy secret, who really need to keep the contents of these emails secret. Now, of course, that yes, that can be used by bad guys as well as good guys. This is a tool, and like any tool, it can be used for good or for ill. Um, but when you're talking about journalists, when you're talking about whistleblowers, when you're talking about um, dissidents in other countries, these are people whose very lives depend upon their communications being kept secret. And that's where services like LavaBit come in and ProtonMail, and there are others out there as well. But we are about to talk to Ladar Levison, who's got some very interesting takes on this and really good history uh, about the security uh, of our email system and why he created the LavaBit service in the first place. And in particular, how it really played out on the national stage with the whole Edward Snowden thing. So without further ado, let's talk to Ladar Levison. We're a new breed of talk radio with a new breed of host and shows to entertain and inform you. It's America Out Loud Talk Radio. Shows that impact your health, honor our heroes, political talk. Shows that inspire you to live a truly authentic life. You can hear your favorite shows on networks like iHeartRadio or AHA Radio, or just download our free apps on both Android and Apple. But we are proud to have you as one of our growing family of listeners. We are the vision of the voices, AmericaOutloud.com. Well, looking good and feeling good are not exactly the same thing. It's just like a car. It may look good from the outside, but... What's the inside look like? More importantly than that, what's the inside of your cells look like? That's a question you need to ask yourself. Well, when I started taking Healthy Cell just a few months ago, it has changed my program. I mean, it's boosted my energy. I sleep better, sharper focus. I feel healthier, and hopefully we'll all live longer with improved cells. Well, 90-plus nutrients infused into every cell of your body. Well, this is an exclusive offer for friends of America Out Loud. You can try it today free. And when I say free, I mean free. It's our Healthy Cell Pro 7-Day Sample. Free shipping, no risk, no obligation, no credit card required. So this is a complimentary gift from America Out Loud. You can go to HealthyCell.com forward slash Out Loud Sample or just go to AmericaOutloud.com and click the large banner ad and our complimentary gift will be on its way to your home. All right, and as promised, we are here with Ladar Levison. He serves as the founder, president, and chief executive of LavaBit. Uh, and LavaBit is a secure email service that has been around for most of the last 13 years or so. And we'll talk a little bit about what I mean by that. Uh, but uh, Ladar, thank you very much for coming. Well, thank you for having me. Fire away. All right, so uh, let's just start out with a little bit of history. Tell us, tell us about how and why you started LavaBit in the first place. Uh, so I started LavaBit in April of 2004 as a reaction to Gmail. Um, I don't know how many of your listeners will remember, but on April 1st, 2004, Google announced their Gmail project, which was at the time um, a little bit groundbreaking in the sense that it offered free one gigabyte storage quotas uh, to, for people who wanted to sign up for email. Um, and I, at the time, thought that was a great idea. Give people large storage quotas, use open source software, provide them with a free email account. But the one thing I didn't like about the Gmail announcement was the fact that they were going to be scanning people's private messages to uh, collect data 
and build profiles for advertising purposes. So LavaBit, what at the time was called NerdShack, uh, sort of sprung up as a reaction to it, as you know, my effort to create the type of service that I would want to use. And it's just sort of grown from there. Now, I don't recall there being many of these. Back in 2004, I don't think many of us were really thinking about privacy much than the web. You know, it wasn't new, but, you know, a lot of us were still kind of new to the concept. And I don't think a lot of us were thinking about privacy and understanding all the tracking and things that were going on that were, you know, that were basically paying for these quote unquote free services. Were there any, was anybody else back then thinking the way you were? So there were a lot of, uh, freemium email services springing up almost on a daily basis. Um, so that was pretty common. Um, I, I think the key is that when I first started the company, I didn't start it out with a mandate, you know, to build an encrypted email service. I sort of, fell into that over the course of the first year. I really started out with the mindset that I wanted to create the type of service that I would want to use. And being an engineer by training, I was keenly aware of how systems work and wanted to build one that would respect my privacy. Now, if you go back to 2004, that was the year that we started learning a lot about the provisions that were in the Patriot Act. Mm. We learned about national security letters, things of that nature. And what I sort of realized over the first few months of operating this service is that um, I had sort of taken on a burden that I didn't really realize when I first started. I was now a service provider. I now had people's private information. And my fear after reading some of these articles was that I could be placed in this situation where I have to choose between going to jail and my understanding of the U.S. Constitution. And knowing myself and that I would probably pick jail in that situation, I decided to use my engineering skill to build a system that would prevent that from happening. And that was what the impetus was for creating the encryption features in the first version, first generation of LavaBit. Gotcha. Now, so fast forward a bit to 2013, and that all that that whole nightmare of yours kind of came to fruition. What what can you tell us about what happened and why LavaBit shut down back in 2013? So the system that I ended up creating over the first you know eighteen months of LavaBit's existence. By the way, it was about eighteen months in that we renamed it from NerdShack to LavaBit. Um, you know, at the time there was only one other encrypted email service provider that I knew of. And they almost went out of business after cooperating with an FBI investigation. Hmm. But fast forward to 2013, and it was sort of the first instance in which um, there was a target on my system that the FBI wanted badly enough to push the boundaries of the law. And, of course, that target was Edward Snowden. Mm -hmm. You know, if if you rewind the tape to June of 2013... Um, Washington, D.C. was effectively in a panic because they didn't know what he had taken, who he had shared it with, um, and what was coming down the pipe. Um, So for them, it was the equivalent of being backed up against the wall. And, you know, they were willing at that time to break all their own rules in order 
to sort of learn some of those answers. Well, Edward Snowden was a customer, and he was one of the customers that had enabled the encryption feature. So when they came to me with a valid warrant for his data, I couldn't provide it. And what they did is after spending several hours explaining to them how the system worked, um, they went back to the National Security Agency, and one of their engineers came up with the plan of taking my TLS key and using a tool that they had developed to impersonate my server on the Internet, which would allow them to sort of intercept the encrypted data in transit. So they couldn't get access to the data on the server because I had engineered a solution to protect it. But what they could do is they could break open the encrypted tunnel that the user was using to connect to the service. And that's sort of what led to the litigation. It was whether or not they could take the key that didn't belong to Edward Snowden, but the key that belonged to LavaBit, impersonate LavaBit on the internet, thus intercepting every customer's traffic, and then in the midst of that, extract presumably only the information belonging to Edward Snowden. Right. The problem is, if you picture that, they're putting themselves in the middle. And, you know, being in that position, they could have collected anybody's information. Um, They could have modified data. In fact, by its very nature of the system that they were proposing, data was going to be modified. So it was this sort of groundbreaking sort of legal, you know, foray or, or sparring match over whether or not this could happen. Um, the problem was, you know, all of these naive sort of ideas I had at the time about our legal system never really sort of panned out. Um, you know, we're, we're taught growing up that, you know, the Fourth Amendment, the amendment that protects us from illegal search and seizure, which we sometimes naively call our right to privacy, existed. You know, everybody thinks of their Miranda rights, their right to a lawyer, uh, their right to a fair trial, their right to a full and fair hearing of the arguments, a.k.a. due process. And none of that happened in my case. And it was sort of a wake up call to how the legal system truly works. And, you know, we can get into later why that was the case if you're interested but yes. in sort of this abbreviated theater, you could almost call it, um, I was railroaded into being forced to turn over the key. And when I lost that sort of abbreviated sparring match, if you could call it that, I turned over the key, but shut down the system so that there would be nothing to impersonate. Wow. In other words, I realized that there was nothing I could do Um, And I didn't want to be put in the position of basically operating a service um, that was going to become a government listening post. Um, It just it didn't fit with my moral ethos. So it became a very easy decision at that point um, that the best thing I could do to minimize the damage of my loss would be to shut down. Well, I'll I'll give you a lot of credit because I don't think a lot of other people would have found it that easy. Um, that, that is a true, that's a true sticky situation. Um, and, uh, I don't envy you being in that position now, just, just to be clear, you had, 
from what I've read, you've you had previous cases where there were individuals targeted in your system where that you'd been served with subpoenas, and and for and you were able to process those. But this particular one was fundamentally very different, as you say. This was this wasn't a targeted thing. This was a blanket order. Is that true? Well, so there were a handful of differences. Um, first of all, this was the first time the FBI ever showed up in person to deliver the warrant. Um, so it was a very different investigation from the start. Um, but that in entirely of itself wasn't unexpected. Um, you know, I had dealt with law enforcement before on other investigations numerous times, um, and nothing remotely close to this had ever happened. Now, one thing to understand about my service is that there were a few design features about it. Um, I built it over time, basically from the ground up. Um, I built my own mail server that spoke all the protocols. So all user data was being handled by code that I had written myself. And I had this fundamental rule going into it that I wouldn't collect any information I didn't have a technical reason to have. Um, so I didn't do a lot of tracking. I didn't collect a lot of metadata, um, you know, but ultimately the most important data that I had were users, individual emails. And that was where the encryption feature came in. Now, when I finished building this encryption feature, I, it sort of dawned on me the power of it. Um, by that point I had been operating the service for about a year. Um, I think I had probably already dealt with numerous abuse situations. I don't know if I had dealt with law enforcement at that point. I, I don't recall. But I sort of understood what I was creating. And the bargain I made with myself was that at the time, I would limit it to only my paid customers. With the thinking being that if a user ever activated this feature and then used it for something nefarious... Um, I would be able to turn over their payment details and they could go directly to the user to get the data. Gotcha. Um, you know, my goal was never to end surveillance. It was to shift the focus of surveillance from service providers back onto individual suspects. And that to this day sort of remains my goal. Um, you know, we're, we're regardless of what I do, over the next 10 to 15 years, we are going to be transitioning out of what I've been calling the golden era of surveillance, when data passed freely and unprotected across open networks. And that has been slowly changing, and it's been getting harder and harder um, for intelligence agencies to collect what they want. You know, they're, they're exiting a world in which they could get everything to a world in which it's getting harder to collect anything into a world that I hope we return to, which requires them to sort of exert effort for each individual that they choose to target. When surveillance is easy, um, you know, if you watch Citizen Four, there's a great clip of me explaining this, but when su surveillance is easy, um, the state tends to overuse it. Um, by making surveillance more difficult through technology such as end-to-end -end encryption, we're going to force them to return to a world in which they have to be more targeted in who they look at. And the hope is that the natural byproduct of that is they tend to 
mostly target people that are legitimately criminals. So in a recent tweet, uh, you said, and I quote, the fight for privacy rights is the issue of our generation. 50 years from now, the tens and privacy will be like the sixties and civil rights. I think that was well said, but explain to the audience, why is privacy so important? And I don't mean, you know, protect things from my wife or, or something like that. I'm talking about from a, from a democratic standpoint, from a human rights from standpoint, why is privacy so important? Well, I mean, if you go back to the sixties, there were demonstrations in the streets over whether or not segregation was the right way to proceed as a society. Um, it was the debate about right and wrong when it came to civil rights. And it's something that my generation takes for granted, that all people are created equal regardless of race or creed. Um, but back in the 60s, that wasn't the case. And my fear is that whatever comes out of this debate 50 years from now, our grandchildren won't question whatever is the accepted norm. They won't remember a time when there was a presumption of privacy, when you were in public or operating with an electronic device. And that's my fear. Um, you know, I could go back even further to another example that wouldn't fit in 140 characters. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, at the beginning of our union, there was this debate between loose constructionists and strict constructionists over the extent of authority the federal government possessed. And it was settled in over time in a series of amendments and Supreme Court cases, but effectively the loose constructionists won. And the result of that is that we take for granted 200 years later that the federal government can dictate whatever they want to individual states. Um, and that's sort of created this system now where we have this massive federal government. But the result, the point I'm trying to make is that nobody considers a world in which the federal government doesn't have that authority. You know, if you look to the European Union as a corollary, they're going through a similar transition where the European Union which started out as a loose union of loosely aligned individual states is quickly becoming a cohesive country with a shared set of laws, values, and regulations. And, you know, if you look to Brexit, that's part of Brexit is their sort of receding from that uh, trend. Um, but here in the United States, we don't even have that debate anymore. Unless you're in California, which always threatens to secede. But, <laughs> you, know, you know, the rest of the country, um, th that was a, a post-Trump thing, right? There was a big threat for California, Oregon, and Washington would secede from the Union. Right. Well, of you course, know, I'm, Texas I'm has been talking about that for a long time, I too. was going to say, I'm, I'm here in, living in Texas, and they, they like to talk about the clause in their constitution, the state constitution that allows them to secede as well. Although I don't haven't heard too much actual talk of it lately but you know it's 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 taken for granted and my fear is that we're really settling the debate right now about how much authority a government should have when it comes to invading our privacy 
And 50 years from now, whatever is decided won't be questioned. So here's the one difference I see, I think, with the analogy and where it is that from what I can tell, people don't seem to believe that privacy is important. They don't believe that this is a right that they need to exercise. In fact, many people, at least from their actions, seem to be willing to just willingly give that up. It's 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 not you know, it's not a certain segment of population. It's the entire population that, that is affected by this. It's a, and nevertheless, so few people seem to care. Why why do you think that is? So this comes down to basic human psychology. Um, people who are preoccupied with food and shelter are only going to worry about food and shelter. People who have that taken care of suddenly have the energy and thought to worry about other issues, moral issues, right and wrong, uh, following laws, things of that nature. Um, we're living in a world where people are so busy with so many different things that it's hard to get them to care about any individual issue that doesn't affect them personally. That doesn't mean they don't care. That doesn't mean they don't have an opinion. But it does mean that it's hard to get people motivated to march in the streets over any particular topic. I think Edward Snowden put it best, um, and I, hopefully I don't butcher this quote, but I think he said, people that uh, don't believe in the right to privacy uh, don't defend the right to privacy because they don't have anything to hide. It, it, it's similar to saying, I'm not going to defend the right to free speech because I have nothing to say. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a good para paraphrase of what he said, and it's, it's entirely true. Um, it was an issue that I cared about. And have always cared about. I have a degree in political. I have a few degrees, but one of them happens to be in political science. Um, so, I have an innate understanding of the origin and boundaries of our various rights as they've evolved over the last 220 years. Um, and for me, I truly understand the importance of the right to privacy um, because I remember or I shouldn't say I remember, I'm not quite that old, um, <laughs> although sometimes I feel like it. Um, but the, the British soldiers invading houses in search of um, revolutionary, revolutionary sympathizers. You know, I remember reading about the Star Chamber and its secret hearings. So I understand the origin and the purpose of our Bill of Rights and their role in protecting our freedom. And to me, that makes my own personal choices with regard to protecting those um, sort of very strongly held beliefs, the types of beliefs that I'm willing to defend if ever challenged. But at the same time, they're not the types of things that I go march in the street over. I prefer to enforce my views on my world and make a difference in the areas that I can control. And one of the areas that I happen to have control over is my service. And it was only when those two areas came into conflict that there was ever really an issue. And I'm just fortunate that I made the right one because it wasn't clear at the time what the right decision was. Yeah.
So generally speaking, what authority do law enforcement agencies have with respect to demanding uh, user metadata or user communications? And more importantly, maybe where does, where does that authority come from or where do they claim that authority comes from? So it's sort of evolved over, you know, a, a long history um, through a large number of cases. Um, but unfortunately, when technologies were primitive, it was very easy to make certain decisions, which over time have evolved into sort of creating very serious consequences. Um, but one of those cases sort of made the presumption that the Fourth Amendment, what we kind of naively think is our right to privacy, that its protection ends at the home. So when you store stuff outside of your home, the Fourth Amendment no longer applies. Mm. And with the introduction of electronic communications, going back to the telegraph, you know, 100 years ago, um, that sort of thinking has evolved to where anything that you store electronically on a service provider isn't protected from search and seizure by the government. Now, for me, the biggest problem and the easiest solution is that there is no requirement under U.S. law to notify someone that they've been secretly placed under surveillance. There are other countries that do have such requirements. And I, I actually believe that one of the easiest things we could do in the short term to sort of change the course of history would be to pass such a requirement that within 12 to 24 months, uh, law enforcement would be required to notify somebody if uh, their data had been searched. I think the easier um, sort of rule to get passed or codified into law um, and could be done through the courts, not necessarily through Congress, would be at, at the very least allowing service providers to notify customers when data has been turned over after a certain period of time, regardless of what law enforcement wants. Because the way the law is written now, we've sort of gone into a world over the last 10 to 12 years, really since 9-11, um, you know, probably starting in about 2002, where investigations that used to be opened up to public scrutiny after a fixed period of time now remain secret indefinite. And what this means from a service provider perspective is that when we get search warrants and subpoenas for user information, they're written such that we're not allowed to disclose them to anybody who does not have a technological reason to know about the order and or is not a lawyer providing us with counsel. So what this really means is even at a company as large as Gmail, um, you know, the Google CEO may not even know about a particular surveillance order. Hmm. Only a handful of lawyers and engineers would know, which makes it very easy for the spokesperson to conveniently deny cooperation because they legitimately have no idea. Plausible deniability. Now, I've engineered our systems um, because I'm 
you know, a li- probably a little bit farther down the paranoid scale than most people <laughs> where, um, you know, I have a technological reason to know um, that trumps anything else. You know, there was no way the FBI could get what they wanted without my help. So the crux of the matter and the, and the argument that is always brought up in these cases is, you know, the classic terrorism case or someone's going to die if we don't get this information. There is a, yeah, I mean, the classic test that I use is, is there, there's a suitcase-sized nuclear weapon somewhere in New York City, and your service holds the information as to where it's located. And to hear Ladar Levinson's answer to that thorny question, you're going to have to tune in next week for part two of my fascinating interview about security and email privacy and how we trade off all of these things versus our national security and uh, other interests. We'll talk a little bit more about his new version of LavaBit and uh, secure email in general. You're not going to want to miss it. Tune in next week for that. We are one of the fastest growing podcast and talk radio networks in the world. You're listening to the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network. It's where we say, let the silent voices be heard. We stand proudly with the men and women who serve in our armed forces and our law enforcement heroes. Thank you for being part of our family. And we'll see you back at AmericaOutloud.com. But before we go, we can't leave without doing our tip of the week. And earlier in the show, we talked about that Wisconsin company that was supposedly forcing its employees to microchip themselves so that they must be tracked everywhere they go. Or at least that was the implication of a lot of the headlines. And unfortunately today, we're flooded with these sorts of things on Facebook and Instagram and uh, emails forwarded to us from friends and family. Uh, even on the regular news we see today, a lot of that stuff, they're, they're getting on the news. They're quoting from some online web source. And that's just the world we live in today. We are swamped with information. It's the information age. And unfortunately, that means it's not all good information, and we have to somehow sort out the good from the bad, the, the true from the false. How do we do that today? Well, we talked a little bit about building digital trust last week, um, but I've got a very specific recommendation for you, and that's our tip of the week. And that is to go to a wonderful website called snopes.com. That's S-N-O-P-E-S.com. Uh, I hope you've heard of this, but you, if you have not, these guys are kind of the original fact checkers, the original PolitiFact. Now, when they started over 20 years ago, their mission was really to kind of to debunk urban legends. Uh, it was very popular, especially um, well, it's always been popular. But when the when the Internet first started coming around and there were these online bulletin boards and emails, uh, these sort of things started spreading like wildfire. And so these guys decided, well, let's put together a website that actually does the research and so people can go and find out, are there really alligators in the sewers? And uh, did Coca-Cola really put cocaine in their original Coke formula? By the way, you can go to Snopes.com right now and find the answers to those questions, among many, many others. Um, so when you see these articles that are too good to be true or maybe too bad to be true or too crazy to be true, and you think, gosh, is, is, is that real? How do you know? Well, you go to a website like Snopes.com. So before you forward it, before you send it on to everybody you know, before you post it on Facebook as truth, or even just quickly post something and say, oh, this is interesting, 
try not to spread these things any farther than necessary without really doing the fact checking. And Snopes.com is the place you want to go. So the other reason I'm bringing up Snopes.com this week and why I'm making it my tip of the week is these guys are in some financial difficulty. They've got a, they've been around a long time. They've been p- providing extremely valuable service to all of us, and we need them to keep doing what they're doing. It's not going to get it better out there. It's just going to get worse. And we need places like Snopes.com that will do the research, publish it on the web so that you can find out all these crazy stories, if they're true or not, and, or if there's some grain of truth, which is actually much more common. There's some part of it that's true, but that knowing which part of it's true and which part of it's blown out of proportion or which part of it has kind of you know, blown into a major story that is not the true story is what's really crucial. Uh, they're basically having some trouble, I guess it sounds like, with their internet host provider who's not letting out of their contract and it's not allowing them to do their own advertising and make some money. And in order to even fight these guys in court, they can't make money to do it, so they're asking for donations. So if you go to the Snopes.com website, you can, you'll can you immediately see a little banner saying you can donate. And uh, while technically they have already met their, their goal, these guys do great work. They're going to need more help. Uh, I'm here to encourage you to go ahead and give them money anyway. These guys do really good work, and we want them to keep doing it for a long time to come. So send a little money to Snopes.com and bookmark that website. It's got great information, and next time you get that you know, crazy uncle forwarding you that thing on Facebook or someone in your family sending you that chain email that claims something that's just outrageous before you forward that on, check it out on Snopes.com. And once you find out whether it's true or not, particularly when you find out it's not, which is probably more common, reply to those people and say, hey, check this out here first before you forward this any further. So that's our tip of the week. And that's going to bring this show to a close. Again, be sure to tune in next week, folks. We're going to have the second part of our interview with Ladar Levinson where we answer that Classic security question, what do you do when someone's got that nuclear bomb and only you can give up their privacy and save the planet? Um, We'll talk about those situations and and more. I also want to make sure that I bring to your attention one more time the free copy of my book you can win. We're going to be having another episode of Castle Defense 101, and in that one we're going to talk about doing backups and how you protect all of your stuff from malicious software and bad things happening in general by making sure you've got multiple backup copies. And so what I want you to do, uh, send me your worst or best stories around backups. Did you lose everything? Uh, Perhaps your house was on fire and that was the only copy of the information you had was on your computer and it was smoked. Uh, Maybe you have a good story. Maybe you, you, you heard someone else say, boy, you should really do a backup. You backed up your phone right before you dropped it in the toilet and lost everything. I want to hear about your most interesting story. And whoever sends me the best story, they will win a free copy of my book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. So send that story to Carrie Parker at AmericaOutloud.com. We only got a few more weeks probably before I get to that episode. So send them to me soon. And just a reminder, go to Hover.com slash Firewalls and you'll get 10% off your next or after first order with with Hover.com. Fantastic domain name service. Check those guys out and tell them Carrie sent you. And until next week, folks, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.